Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. The debate you're about to hear is called Assisted Dying, a Doctor's Poisoned Chalice, with Piers Ben as chair. We'd like to say a special thanks to Living and Dying Well, who partnered with us to produce this debate. Okay, well, welcome to this session of the contemporary controversy strand of the Battle of Ideas, when we shall be discussing uh, the very controversial and evergreen topic of assisted dying. Assisted dying, a doctor's poisoned chalice. Uh, We are very pleased to say that we're in partnership with Living and Dying Well, uh, and we're very grateful for their support uh, for this venture. And thanks to them. Now, I won't talk for too long about the subject. It's probably familiar to most of you. But uh, assisted dying, or better perhaps known as assisted suicide, is a bread-and-butter issue of medical ethics. It comes up every now and again in the news. It's quite topical. And it's the question of whether competent adults should ever be granted their wish to be helped to take their own lives in order to be spared intolerable suffering, either now or in the future. It should be distinguished, I should say, from euthanasia, which raises many of the same ethical questions and principles, but assisted dying is when uh, the patient takes his or her own life with the assistance of a third party. In this case, we're particularly talking about doctors. Are there any special moral complexities that come from the involvement of doctors in the suicide of patients? Now, um, the BMA, the British Medical Association, has a long-standing record of opposition to changing the law, which currently uh, can get you 14 years in prison if you aid or abet a suicide, although the Royal College of Physicians has recently adopted a neutral stance. I think the arguments are probably, in rough outline, quite quite well known to all of you. And one thing that interests me, or will interest me during the course of this discussion, is whether uh, each side can say what it would take to change their minds, given that they're likely to be more or less familiar with what the other side says. Does it come down to bedrock unbudgeable moral intuitions or, uh, or, or convictions of fact, or is uh, change of heart or mind possible? But I'll leave that to the panellists. I'm very pleased to have four distinguished speakers on my panel. Uh, going first is Professor John Harris on my, the, on my far right here. John Harris is uh, an emeritus professor at University of Manchester in bioethics Uh, He served on many advisory bodies, like the United Kingdom Human Genetics uh, Commission, and he has written many books on philosophy and bioethics. You can Google him, you'll find his many books. Uh, Secondly, I have Dr. Kevin Yule, who is sitting on my near left. He is Associate Professor of History at the University of Sunderland, and he's published Assisted Suicide, The Liberal Humanist Case Against Legalisation. He's written on this subject for uh, various publications, including The Economist, Telegraph, Independent, and Spectator. Thirdly, on my immediate right, I have Dr. Jackie Davis. She is a consultant radiologist at Whittington Hospital. She sat on the BMA Council since 2006 and the BMA Medical Ethics Committee since 2015. She lectures all around the world on the NHS. She writes for many newspapers and publications, and uh, the campaign to change the law on assisted dying is close to her heart. And we also said last but not least, but it really is last but not least, Carol Davis is a consultant in palliative medicine and clinical lead of end-of-life care 
at University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust. She started the hospital, hospital palliative care team there, and she works mainly in the hospice community and acute hospital. So without further ado, um, I'd like to invite, uh, to begin with, to give a short introduction to his point of view, Professor John Harris. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, wonderful to be at the Battle of Ideas again. Um, I shall have to be very brief, so let me start with a, a truism, which I'm sure will strike you all as absolutely true and unarguable. It is that there is only one thing wrong with dying, and that's doing it when you don't want to. It follows that doing it when you do want to, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't believe any of you would not take the bargain if it was in my power to give it to you. That you would die, yes, but only if and only if you wanted to. You'd be crazy not to take that bargain. And I'm sure there are no crazy people in this room, even on the panel. So this is, in essence, the argument from autonomy. Basically, choosing the place and time and manner of my own death is no more in principle damaging to others than is anything else I might do that others just happen not to like. Respect for persons requires us to acknowledge the dignity and value of other persons and to treat them as ends in themselves, not merely instrumentally, as means to the ends or objectives chosen by others. And this means respecting their autonomy. The ending of our own lives often will determine life's final shape. Indeed, death often determines the, the final shape of anyone's life, but both for ourselves and in the eyes of others. When we are denied control of the end of our lives, we're denied the capacity to give our lives its ultimate meaning for us to give our lives its ultimate meaning, not have that meaning foisted upon us by some other people at this table. <laughs> As Ronald Dworkin memorably put it, making someone die in a way that others approve, but that he believes a horrifying contradiction of his own life is a devastating and odious form of tyranny. And I trust that everybody in this room would wish to oppose tyranny. Let me now turn briefly to vulnerability. Many objectors, objectors to medically assisted death or indeed other forms of voluntary euthanasia uh, focus their arguments on their concern for the vulnerable. Well, let me just say I yield to nobody on my concerns for the vulnerable. But there, in this debate, there are two groups of vulnerable individuals. There are vulnerable people who, who might be pressured into requesting a death that they actually don't want, and there are others, many of them, like the Tony Nicholson case and many others, who are cruelly denied the death that they seek. We are surely not entitled to abandon one group of vulnerable people in favor of the other. We somehow have to do justice to both. But those seeking medically assisted death are the more vulnerable because at the moment, in our society, they are truly coerced, absolutely prevented from obtaining the remedy they seek. Those who might be encouraged to die are and remain free to refuse. They are not victims unless they make themselves into victims. 
Those who seek and are denied death are genuinely coerced, genuinely rendered unfree, have their autonomy taken from them, and are the victim, victims of tyranny, as Ronald Dworkin so eloquently put it. Quick word about slippery slopes. Everybody says, but this is on a slippery slope, it's something else. Only, only the feeble-minded are frightened of uh, slippery slopes. It's a matter of footwear. It's just a matter of footwear. It's skis or crampons. It's up to the voyager to decide in which direction they want to go. If they want to go up, they put on the crampons. If they want to go down, they put on the, the skis. So slippery slopes are irrelevant. And to conclude, I just want to give an example that I think shows absolutely that none of you, whatever you thought when you came into this room, are against um, assisted dying. And this is a, a true case related by the late, great Herbert Hart, professor of jurisprudence in Oxford, which he heard, a, it was a United States case of a lorry driver whose lorry was on fire, blazing away, and he couldn't escape from the cab. On the scene was a policeman armed as policemen in America are with sidearms, and he begs the policeman to shoot him in the head rather than allow him to be burnt alive. Now, the, it doesn't really matter what the policeman did, but I don't think anybody would think that somebody who was willing to give somebody the death they sought, which would be a kinder death than the alternative, would be doing wrong. So the question before us, is that policeman to be thrown in jail for life? Is that policeman to be told that he's a moral monster for having the sympathy and the courage to help that man in peril of being burnt alive? I don't believe it. I hope none of you in that situation would forbear to give the man a peaceful or more peaceful death, a better alternative death. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you, John Harris. Uh, next to Dr. Kevin Ewell. Right. Um, first of all, on the policeman's dilemma, which is interesting, and you were asking sort of whether we're open-minded about this, I like to think I am open-minded uh, on any of these issues. On the policeman's dilemma, I think I probably would have shot the policeman. But I would not change the law to make it a legal thing uh, to shoot policemen in that situation. And I'll explain sort of what I mean. My position is that uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia are wrong really for the same reason that capital punishment is immoral. Uh, it's wrong for the state to prescribe death to cure the ills either of society or of individuals. So to me, it's a moral question, it's a question of law. But what I'm gonna do for the rest of this session is just go through what we know. I'm doing some research on, on understanding this in countries where it has been legalized and what has it meant for them. So just some numbers first of all. Uh, we know that in, in the Netherlands both assisted suicide and euthanasia are legal and um, since 2003. In Oregon, 1997. Belgium, uh, euthanasia only is legal not assisted suicide, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. In Canada, in June 2016, uh, it became both euthanasia and assisted suicide became legal. So in terms of numbers, in Oregon, it's fairly steady. About, it was 168 last year. It's a fairly low amount. It's a very small percentage of the people who actually request information on assisted death. 
uh, actually go through with the act. It's, um, I think that's probably something we'd all agree on. It, it, the numbers are fairly small in Oregon. Whereas um, in the Netherlands, there's been a steep rise from when it became, from 2005 when they measured it was uh, slightly less than 2000. In 2018, it's gone up to 6,600 uh, people. And in Canada, um, it's about 3,000. And it's difficult to tell what the trends are since it hasn't been legal for that long. So it's about 4% of deaths in the Netherlands, 1.12% in Canada, and about 0.4% in uh, Oregon. So the num what's one of the fascinating things that I'd love to come out in this discussion is why the numbers of euthanasia are rising in the Netherlands, whereas the numbers of assisted suicides are still fairly low. They're static. Um, in ne the Netherlands, 97% of uh, these deaths are euthanasia versus 3% of assisted suicide. In Canada, only eight assisted suicides took place in, a, in the previous year. So it's very, very low numbers. So that does put into question, is this about autonomy? Because the most autonomous thing, of course, would be assisted suicide rather than to get a doctor doing it. Um, is this about pain? No. Uh, pain does not come up on, uh, the, in Oregon, where the top five, in the top five reasons, being a burden comes out higher um, for reasons why people do it. And as a report noted recently in the Netherlands, it's about care dependence and meaninglessness. It's why people take up uh, these options. So another question that comes up a lot is, is for instance, in Dignity and Dying, they, they say, well, this will prevent back, back room suicides. I think back, anyway, it's sort of a parallel with the abortions. But it turns out there are, it's, there's very little evidence uh, to support that. Uh, organ suicide rates rose faster than the rest of the country during the period of time when it's been legal. And in the Netherlands, suicide over the past 10 years has been up 35%. And um, some, leading some people, I don't think it's fair to conclude that, that this increases suicide. All we can say is really that suicide rates and uh, it, that there's no evidence to show that it prevents any suicides. Um, although some people in the, the Netherlands think that there is a connection, as Jay Letton from the Central Bureau of Statistics says, uh, when there's a public discussion of death, people will act accordingly. I'm not completely convinced of that, uh, but it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. The other thing we know is that the categories expand. So though the law was justified in changing all the time by terminally ill, it is now a cure for... Uh, and I use that uh, advisedly, for dementia, psychiatric problems, blindness, and autism. Uh, there were eight people so far with autism who were euthanized in the Netherlands. Uh, they had nothing else wrong with them. This, there's also children in Belgium, and now children, uh, the, the, uh, it has been extended to more children um, below the age of 12 in the Netherlands. This also throws up the question of autonomy. The 15 days criteria in Oregon has been rolled back. You don't have to have 15 days. Um, in Canada, in September, the, the foreseeable death, that sort of meaningless phrase that the Canadians use to, um, to say what uh, assisted death is, uh, has been got rid of by the uh, Quebec court, has struck it down, and they want to extend it to many, many more categories. 
Uh, in the Netherlands, there's also a very large completed life movement, which is supported by the, all the main political parties and means that we should provide euthanasia as an option for those over 70 or 75. The categories tend to expand. As soon as you offer it as a cure for one group, another group will come along and lobby for it as a solution for their particular problem, and these categories have expanded, and this is a tendency in these places. The last point I want to make is that we have to ask whether, as, as Theo Bohr has, a colleague in, in the Netherlands, whether euthanasia and assisted suicide are a last resort to prevent a terrible death or the last resort to prevent a terrible life. And that's what I think is, is transforming about this. In the Netherlands, one quarter of all deaths, if we include suicide and palliative sedation, are actually cause-induced, if you like. So death is changing from something that happens to us to something that either we do or is done to us. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. And thirdly, we turn to Dr. Jackie Davis. Thanks very much. I'm going to give a slightly different aspect, which is how did a sort of jobbing doctor get up on the platform here today? Because like a lot of doctors, I absolutely had not thought about assisted dying. Isn't that shocking? Um, and somebody asked me, and my background is in, is in campaigning for the health service, um, and somebody asked me to do a talk, um, I, I helped with it, pass a motion actually to be a main meeting about assisted dying, and I said no, I didn't like that ethical stuff, and then I thought, well, perhaps I should. And so I gave a talk about medical paternalism, and it is interesting that, you know, the, the great movement has been in my lifetime as a doctor to, to give autonomy to patients, and the last area where we're not giving autonomy to patients, and we still think we know better than they do, is around death. So as a result, I joined an organization called Healthcare professionals for assisted dying which is the medical branch of dignity and dying um, and after that this is not what propelled me into what I do there were two very bad deaths in my family there was a very elderly member of my family who got incurable cancer um, and spent three months dying and she said to me the whole time um, I'm not afraid of death dear but I am afraid of the way I'm going to die and her generation was very very uh, afraid about losing dignity and in fact because the um, palliative care team made a mess and uh, not their fault they were brilliant up until that point there wasn't anybody around that weekend and she was doubly incontinent and she died with death she absolutely was afraid of. Um, my brother, who had terminal cancer while he was watching this, said, I'm not going to die like that, and if I can't get hold of an assisted death, I'm going to kill myself. And he um, had a horrible bodged suicide um, that you can read about in The Guardian if you want to go and look for it. I wrote an article about it. I was so upset about it. And I thought, if there are two bad deaths in my close family... Think how many bad deaths there are going on in this country every day. And it's got nothing to do with the availability or otherwise of palliative care. It's got to do with what's important to people. Um, and, you know, it may not be that suffering is the most important thing, but I, what I'm sorry is that not given out at the door, because this meeting is, is, is run by living and dying well, is this, which has just come out from Dignity and Dying. It's called The Inescapable Truth. Um, and it is about the way that people die in this country. And even if you were to improve palliative care, that the, the, the statistics suggest that 17 people a day would die with unrelieved symptoms. So you have to think about um, what, what my colleague here was saying, which was there, there are lots of vulnerable people involved here, and some of them are people who are dying very badly. 
Um, uh, HPAD, Healthcare Professionals Assisted Dying, um, fights for the Oregon law. Um, and we know that the Oregon law is uh, available, uh, assisted death available to people terminally ill, six months or less to live, of sound mind and of fixed intention. It's a um, voluntary euthanasia. It has never been offered in this country, never been on the books. The, the Netherlands model, we can talk about it till we're blue in the face, and of course the opponents like to, but it's never been offered in this country. The Oregon model um, is a very good one because there has been no slippery slope there has been no, um, and it's been under the microscope, of course, for 20 years that it's been in place, um, no, no uh, sign at all that vulnerable people have been affected. And because it's so good, other U.S. states have, have adopted it. There are nine U.S. states that have it now, including uh, California, which, of course, um, 60 million people or some such. Um, and as a result, Canada has a slightly different model. It's in Australia, um, 100 million people worldwide now have access to an assisted death. And I gave a talk last year saying 100 million people have access, why don't we? And I think that's a question we can really be asking ourselves to say, that it's crazy to go on saying it can't work here when 100 million people have made it work. Um, so I think we need to step around the opponents at this point um, and look at how it can be done. Who are the opponents? Well, interestingly, society. We know 82% of people want it. That includes 79% of religious people, over 80% of people with a disability. Who opposes assisted dying? Well, guess what? The leaders of those people. The MPs, the leaders of society, the, le the religious leaders, the people that are high up in the disability movement, and they're not representing grassroots, and they're not representing doctor, uh, patients because there's a doctor I know that medical leaders have opposed it. It will keep coming back. It's been chucked out of the House of um, Commons. It got quite a long way in the House of Lords. An election came up and it couldn't go any further. But Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Man, Scotland are going to be looking at it again, I'm sure. The Falkland Islands, if we want to get micro, vote, voted three to one to have it if, if it was available. So it, it's going to keep coming back. Um, if I've got a moment, I just want to address suicide. You know, you will note that the opponents of assisted dying talk about suicide. And there's a reason for that, because suicide is pejorative. It has violent overtones. What happens when people commit suicide? They do what my brother did. They try to hang himself, and then when it didn't work, they, he threw himself down the stairs. They blow their heads off with a shotgun. They do something very, very violent. Um, so, that, so there's a violent um, element to suicide, and there's a pejorative element to suicide. You know, for a long time, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground if you committed suicide. So, of course, people who are opposed to this like to talk about suicide. I want to give you two more examples of why this isn't suicide. Um, these people do not want to die. There was a young woman in California called Brittany Maynard who really helped change the law in California. She was young, 29. She was nice looking. She was just married. She was very active on social media. And she was told that she had a brain tumor and she was going to die. Um, and there was no law in California at that stage, so she took herself off to Oregon. And she said, I am 29, I don't want to die, but I'm dying. Um, and I want to be in control of the way I die. And analogous to the story we just heard was, if you remember 9-11, you will remember that people who went to work that day weren't thinking of killing themselves that day, but they found themselves on the top of the Twin Towers with a towering inferno underneath them. And they had a choice jump off the Twin Tower or be consumed in the flames. And a lot of them chose to jump off. And I understand that afterwards there was a discussion about how their deaths should be recorded, and it was decided they should not be recorded as suicide because suicide 
has those pejorative overtones. So let's please not talk about it. Nobody talks about physician-assisted suicide apart from the opponents to it. When, it when, the, when the bill was going through the House of Lords, the opponents tried to get the language changed to suicide all the way through, and the House of Lords threw it out. The American College of Suicidology, or some amazing name like that, said, don't call these people suicidal. They're not. They don't want to die. But faced with death, they want to, they want to control it. So I would say to you, this is going to keep coming back. Um, it's about listening to what people want. The politicians need to listen to society. The doctors need to listen to their patients. The religious leaders and the heads of um, disability organizations lead, need to listen to their members. It's going to happen. It's like votes for women. It will happen in this country. We really need to start discussing how to do it and not whether or not it's a good thing. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you. And finally, Dr. Carol Davis. Thank you. Hello. I've been a palliative medicine consultant for 27 years, specialising full-time in palliative care, which is broader than but includes care of the dying. I've worked out that every year I've looked after well over 500 people in the last six months of their life. And over my career, I've totted up that comes to about 15,000, which rather scarily is greater than the population of my hometown. I'm really sorry, Jackie, to hear about the experience in your family. It's not my experience in looking after those 15,000 people. Medicine's changed massively over time, and palliative medicine has evolved alongside it. I believe that some of the arguments that you've just heard do not really reflect 21st century medicine and healthcare. They're not nuanced enough. There are sophisticated interactions every day. These are commonplace between ill people, their families, and healthcare professionals. And there are complex clinical decisions made every day in hospitals, GP surgeries, and homes. Just to be clear, I am talking about physician-assisted suicide, the prescription of lethal drugs to an individual for the sole purpose of them self-administering those drugs to end their own life. This is how it works. They take a drug or a cocktail of drugs, diff different mixtures in different countries. 50% um, of people die within half an hour. 50% uh, of people don't die within half an hour. And data from Oregon, hard data that is out there in the public domain, shows that some people don't die for up to 108 hours. Now, please remember that people take these drugs at, usually at home, either alone or with their families, and without a healthcare professional there. We know very, very little about how they die. We know hardly anything about whether they have symptoms as they die. And we know that a few survive. There's ample evidence that the majority of UK doctors don't want any involvement in actually deliberately ending the lives of their patients by assessing those patients and by writing the prescription. I've got just three key points. Firstly, there's already a right to die and a right to die with dignity in this country. There's no law against refusing treatment, including treatment that might extend or save life. Anyone with mental capacity can formalise this in a legally binding um, advanced decision to refuse treatment and or choose to appoint a lasting power of attorney. Sorry, attorney. Surprisingly, <laughs> or eternity if you like, uh, surprisingly, very few people seem to do this. We know um, from data from Oregon in particular, and this has already been mentioned, that those opting to die in the way I described often choose to because of fear of losing control. So let's take motor neurone disease as an example. So people with motor neurone disease probably do fear, and I talk to them about it. They do fear losing control. That's not surprising because ultimately in most, the muscles controlling their speech, swallowing and breathing are going to become weak. 
but people with MND do have choices. I've looked after lots of patients with motor neurone disease, and I'm going to tell you about one, and I'm going to call him Steve. Steve's paralysed. He can only move his eyes and, his, and smile. He lives at home, and he's kept alive by artificial nutrition, artificial ventilation, and his absolutely amazing wife and some health and social care professionals. He's never contemplated assisted dying. He looks forward to every day, and he loves sport, particularly rugby. So I expect he rearranged his care schedule today to watch the match. He knows there'll come a time when he's dying, and either he can choose to stop treatment, or if he's too ill for that, his life-prolonging interventions will be stopped, because at best, they are simply prolonging his dying process. He's comforted by this. He knows that decisions will be made in his best interests and according to his wishes, and he knows that any symptoms or distress he suffers as he dies will be addressed. Some people with MND make similar decisions. Some decide not to even start artificial um, feeding or ventilation in the first place. Others might start it in, in hospital and choose to stop it when they go home. All of these options are acceptable in modern healthcare in our society. All can sit alongside best possible symptom control and palliative care, and all can end in a peaceful and dignified death with a person feeling as much as possible in control. Today, most deaths of whatever cause aren't anguished. Those dying of MND, for instance, don't choke to death or suffocate. In fact, some of the most peaceful deaths I've seen have been of people with motor neurone disease. Despite this, some people with MND feel the need to consider assisted dying, and this is very, very much in the public eye, and I hear that. But to me, this is a reason, despite what Jackie said, I would argue that it is a really real reason to improve advanced care planning, to improve access to specialists in palliative care, to lobby Parliament to force the inequities in palliative care provision to be addressed, and to address our research base under, underpinning palliative care, which is somewhat lacking. Lack of resources should not be the reason for anyone to contemplate to die before their time. My second point, prognosis is not an exact science. So in the jurisdictions where assisted suicide or euthanasia have been legalised, eligibility is normally tied to prognosis, usually those expected to live six months or less. Do you think doctors are very good at doing that? No, we're not. We often get it wrong, whether we're looking at the course and nature of an illness in an individual or when estimating that individual's survival. And prognosis is influenced by treatments, and new treatments are abounding. Modern medicine continues to move apace. Um, you may have read about cystic fibrosis drugs in the press in the last two or three weeks. I've seen a patient aged 20. He was facing the fact six weeks ago that he was dying. He's had those drugs, and they've worked. <coughs> He is no longer dying. His symptoms are better. Things have changed. Millions of pounds, actually they're mainly dollars, are being thrown at looking at prevention um, and treatment and cure of dementia. Hopefully there's breakthroughs around the corner. How will any assisted law, dying law keep up with that? How will bereaved family and friends feel if a few weeks or months after somebody's committed assisted suicide, there is something that would have made a massive difference to their quality of life and their survival? We've talked a lot about Oregon already, but there's a lot of data from Oregon, and it's important. And if you go away and want to read something, do look in detail at the facts of Oregon. The time between requests for assisted suicide and death over the last 20 years in Oregon has ranged between two weeks and three years. Thirdly, 
the broadening of eligibility criteria over time. So we know from the jurisdictions where assisted suicide has been legalised that it gets harder and harder not to extend the law. We've heard that from Kevin. Harder and harder not to broaden the eligibility criteria to include forms of suffering other than terminal illness. If you would like to put assisted dying and anorexia nervosa or assisted dying and depression into your search engine, you'll see what this can mean for people with treatable and curable conditions. Even the most ardent supporters of assisted dying I believe, are likely to be shocked. Kevin's already talked about Quebec and the changes in that, so I won't do that. So to conclude, is there a need for the law to be changed? I don't think so for the reasons I've outlined and the societal reasons that Kevin's eloquently described. The current law protects individuals, particularly vulnerable individuals. I can't find any evidence that the current law is dysfunctional or oppressive. It does the job. Laws exist to, to, to protect people, and this law, current law, the suicide law of 1961, exists to deter and, if necessary, punish malicious acts whilst tempering and balancing justice and mercy. The public need to be much, much better informed than they are now, and they need to see beyond rhetoric. The debate about assisted dying has been and continues to be very polarised. There needs to be constructive, nuanced wide-ranging discussion and very careful discussion of the role of doctors in the courts. This is an ethical and a moral issue and a legal issue. If nothing else, please remember that doctors who are wary of assisted suicide, like me, have not reached this point of view by observing the world from an ivory tower or anywhere else, but by being alongside lots and lots of dying people. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Carol Davis. That concludes our opening introductions. I'm sure that each speaker has many things they want to raise uh, with things that other speakers have said, and they will have a chance to do so. But I want to go, partly for reasons of time, and we want to involve the audience, I want to go straight to the audience now, and I'll come back to speakers in batches uh, to, to answer questions. I'll take about three or four questions at a time and leave it to speakers to select which questions they wish to answer, um, if any. So, uh, yes, we have... Uh, in, the, in the middle there, the man at the end. Firstly, thank you very much, both sides. Uh, I have a very small criticism for kind of both views of it. Firstly, direct towards Carol, how can you guarantee that for the right to die with dignity? But the way that you phrased it, I apologise apologize for my misunderstanding, uh, patients can choose to refuse treatment, but rather than dying with dignity, uh, I, see, I still see it as them dying of a horrible, often painful disease. And very quickly towards Jackie and John, how can, how can we guarantee that vulnerable people won't be able to game the system of assisted dying? Because I'm, I'm open to that view, but I just need, as a, as a young person who's well-versed in the vulnerabilities that um, everybody face in the modern age, how can we guarantee that vulnerable people won't be able to game the system? Thank you. Um, this is just a comment for Carol. So um, you were talking about the fact that there are new ways to develop to cure different diseases. The thing is, they don't come overnight, obviously, and people who are fighting a disease may not want to continue that fight. There are some people that, yes, they're okay fighting a disease and that's their way of surviving, that's their way of beating it. But other people, that's not their way. People are different. And some people, their way of beating a disease is just 
there's no cure and their way of beating it is not having the disease and ending it at the very beginning and that's their way of beating it and also you said that um, this is a law for a reason the law of 1961 well the thing is laws change laws have always changed we have we now have the equality act of 2010 which is why women are now you know for the most part seen as equals but like this law is outdated Thank you very much. Hi, yeah. Um, I've got a question for the panel. I'm a psychiatrist, and I wondered... Um, somebody at the front... Some, um, somebody... Oh, Carol, in fact, yeah. Raised the, raise the question of, the um, of assisted suicide for people with mental illnesses. Um, and certainly... When, I mean, I know you, you characterise those as sort of curable diseases. I think some people with sort of intractable anorexia or sort of treatment-resistant depression that they've struggled with for many years, actually, they're not particularly curable illnesses. They're, people with those will lead potentially very poor quality lives. I, as a psychiatrist, would be very against the idea of those people having a route to assisted suicide. Um, but I'm interested to see what the panel would think about that. I suppose I've just got one other question that I... Uh, one of those things I've sort of always meant to ask people about in the assisted suicide movement. The, the people that we're talking about some of the time actually would have a choice to commit suicide. I mean, that's not an illegal act. And although I know, Jackie, as you discussed it, obviously that went catastrophically wrong for your brother. I mean, do we? does it need to be something that we involve the medical profession in, I suppose, is, is my question. I first wanted to say to um, Dr. Jackie and John Harris, um, I very much agree with that, like the idea of wanting dignity for those people. Um, yeah, and I'm very sympathetic to that, but I'd like to mention um, a point that um, Dr. Kevin mentioned about the statistic on autistic the eight autistic people in the Netherlands. I'm sure that that was very shocking, but I just wanted to um, ask you too about the specificity of the laws, that um, the law that you want to be introduced to Britain and whether or not like you just like, because not to say anything against what you said, but it is like a slippery soap and I guess Netherlands is an example of that. Well, um, Yes, I just wanted to um, ask what you thought about how the models in different countries will affect how Britain's model that would hypothetically work. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I will take more questions. I'd like to return to the panel uh, for the time being um, and invite any speaker to uh, respond to anything that's been said, uh, perhaps in reverse order of speaking. So, Carol, a lot of questions have been directed at you. Do you want to select any questions to answer? Uh, yeah, thank you for that privilege. I will pick the first one, I think, um, about horrible, painful deaths. I specialise in this. I don't see horrible, painful deaths. I'm not saying there aren't horrible, painful deaths, but I, I don't see them. And anybody who is interested in this argument, and you must be because you're here, needs to read this book. It's by Catherine Mannix, and it's called With the End in Mind, Dying Death and Wisdom in the Age of Denial. And this will tell you about 21st century death. Please, please have a look at it. So certainly in hospitals, it's an Australian phrase, and I've adopted it over here, we talk about dying-friendly hospitals. Palliative care in our acute and community hospitals in this country is the best it has ever been. 
Palliative care at home is the best it's ever been. And yet, palliative care does not reach everybody. I'm not saying that palliative care is the panacea to all ills. Nobody is a magician. But I'd be hard-pushed to think of somebody who I've not had feedback through either formal patient surveys that are anonymous or, or directly or through my team who has not benefited from palliative care when they're getting iller, facing death, and actively dying. So be careful what you think about horrible, painful deaths. They're not quite like you might think they are. Thank you very much. Um, Jackie, any responses? Yes, you, you, um, thank you. You can obtain this book. It's just come out from Dignity in Dying. Um, you know, I, it is completely, it, I'm afraid Carol contradicts what you've said. And I've been a, a doctor for a very long time now. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen things change. I, of course, have seen, you know, new medicines come, new, new treatments come and all the rest of it. But as a radiologist, I see people at the end of life too. And I've seen some people die, deaths that I would not wish to die, and deaths that I would not wish my family to die. So I, I and Carol said rather tellingly, I thought that, that we, can, um, we can deal with most deaths as much as possible. And what we're talking about here is, of course, yeah, let's have great palliative care. And palliative care goes hand in hand with assisted dying. I mean, palliative care in Oregon improved. It's meant to be the best in the States now because there was an open discussion, because people addressed death. Um, so it's part, of, it's part of that spectrum. But what I'm worried about are the people who, who aren't most deaths and the people who aren't as much as possible. It's those 17 people a day in this country who are the vulnerable people that John talked about in the balance. And I just want to talk about vulnerability because somebody asked the question back there. I had a very interesting experience at work. Somebody came to me and said, Dr. Davis, Dr. Davis, why is assisted dying so bad? And I said, well, well it isn't. Why do you think it's so bad? She'd had a letter from her church when the Maris bill was going through Parliament, and the letter said, we want you to write to your MP asking them to vote against the Maris bill and say that you're worried about vulnerable people. Please don't say that we asked you to write this letter, and mm. please don't say that you're a Catholic. Um, now, I'm not saying that, you know, I, well, I am saying, I am saying that there is a huge movement organized, um, um, and a lot of, you know, you're entitled to be religious, of course. I'm not going to have an argument against religious people. What I'm saying is, if you believe that God didn't mean us to do this, then say so, but don't hide behind an argument about vulnerable people, because there's been no evidence um, in Oregon that vulnerable people, and the law in this country, as it went through the House of Lords, introduced even a judge, so, um, you know, you can't, you cannot have that assisted dying, unless you go before a judge and see two psychiatrists and all the rest of it. It's just not going to be available to you. And it's been interesting to see people in the House of Lords come out in their wheelchairs and, you know, admire those people, but they say this demeans our life. It would not be available to those people, as we argue it. Um, somebody asked a very good question about what the legal framework would be. The only, the only suggestion that's ever been made in this country is the Oregon model. It's never and, and Holland was, the Netherlands, was, was voluntary euthanasia from the start. Um, and so the law you pass is the law you get. And there's absolutely no reason to go down any slippery slope or for vulnerable people. And you know who uses assisted dying? It's North London chattering classes because, you know, they're the people who know about it um, and, who, and who switch into it. No evidence at all for vulnerable people in it's often put in front of a religious position about assisted dying, which people don't really want to talk about. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. Uh, Kevin, want to take anything up? Uh, yeah, uh, first of all, um, it, you know, I should emphasize I'm an atheist and I'm opposed to uh, assisted dying, and there are many of us, and one of the 
sort of uh, caricatures, I think, that you use, is, is that it, or many people use, and Jackie's just used, is the idea that all of the arguments against assisted dying are to do with religion. They're certainly not, and we should always listen to religious people, even if they are religious, uh, with their objections, because some of their objections are, are absolutely rational, and I certainly uh, don't close the door to things like that. Second point, Oregon, Oregon, Oregon. We hear a lot about Oregon. Why? Because it has, it's a sort of show state, if you like, where the legislation was passed in 1997. Since then, they have resisted any kind of changes so that they can point to Oregon as a show state so that the rest of the United States will, uh, you know, become, will follow suit. And so you have a very uh, regimented regime. Look to Canada instead, because Canada only changed in 2016, but yet it's the whole country. And they have already transformed so that they are providing um, euthanasia for people with me mental illnesses. And I think that's what you need to actually, if you want to see what the ramifications of, of legalization are, you need to look to Canada or look to the, you know, entire countries where uh, it transforms the entire uh, the culture uh, there. So the very last thing I want to say is just I thought there was a bit of a contradiction between Jackie and John. I thought John was justifying all suicides at the beginning in the sense that you're saying we should all be able to determine our death, um, which really implies suicide. Uh, you know, if we have a choice over our deaths, obviously you have to justify all suicides. Whereas Jackie was saying that um, taking drugs uh, with an idea to end your life is not suicide. And I just wonder uh, what you guys think of that. Okay, thank you. And uh, finally, John. Yes. Uh, well, we don't have to agree with each other. Uh, <laughs> I, I no? said what I said, and I stand by it. But just let me amplify it. Firstly, a, a question, I think the very first question was raised, about how we can be sure that somebody won't decide to die and then regret it. Um, well, apart from the obvious <laughs> paradox of that, <laughs> yep. all decisions we make of any sort, even the most trivial, are irrevocable. If I move this cup like this, I can't mm, unmute it at this moment. To have the freedom to make your own decisions is to have the freedom to make irrevocable decisions. That's what freedom is about. Never mind the nature of the decision. How can we be sure then that some people uh, won't die when we would think that... It, they, they, well, we can't be sure. How can you guarantee that no innocent people will be convicted by the criminal justice system? You can't guarantee that. How can you be sure that no healthy people <laughs> will, will die uh, in, in hospital because of medical negligence or indeed incompetence? You can't be sure of that. But that's not a reason for abolishing hospitals or abolishing the criminal justice system. It's <laughs> a reason for making sure that people are as well qualified as they can, that we build in as many safeguards. But there's no such thing as complete safeguard. This is life. There is no such thing as complete absence of risk for whatever we do. And I'd like to just end this little section by talking about dignity. Yes, I do argue for choosing death without having to qualify for my death by my suffering. I think what is undignified is that I should have to qualify for the death that I seek by suffering first. I don't see why I should have to do that. Um, Oscar Wilde defined uh, selfishness in a wonderful way, which applies to this argument. Wilde said, selfishness is not living as one wishes to live. It is asking others to live as one wishes to live. And that applies to dying too. Selfishness, and indeed loss of dignity, is not dying as one wishes to die. It is being the victim of others' wishes 
as to how we should die. That's what's undignified, and that is the only form of dignity that I recognise. And finally, just on the nasty ivory tower dig that I have, and I'm I probably the, the uh, paradigm of an, somebody who's lived in an ivory tower as an academic um, all my life. Well, one of my closest friends uh, died a few months ago in a major London teaching hospital uh, over the weekend in unbelievable pain. She was under the care of the palliative care team, but over two days, nobody was able to help her. And she would have much preferred to have died on her own terms. So I think actually my colleague on the end of the, the other end of the table is the one who lives in a ivory tower. If she's never seen uh, that sort of thing happening in hospital, then she hasn't walked the corridors of English hospital. Okay. I think just briefly, I, since you've been named. I have to briefly. allow it to come back just on that. Yeah. I do not live in an ivory tower. I might live in a white elephant above the great <laughs> Well then, I live in a world of feces and vomit and pain and right. distress okay. and people wanting to talk about themselves as human beings. I live in a world where people want choices. I live in a world where we deliver those choices. It's absolutely standard in palliative care. I'm sick and tired of being not like this and my specialty being not like this. It's not right and it's not fair and it's not true. So hey, we, we talk to everybody at the right time, which they dictate about their preferred place of care, their preferred place of dying. We go to enormous lengths to avoid it. I'm very sorry to hear these horror stories, and I'm very sorry to hear that in a hospital in London, someone is in such pain over a weekend. That shouldn't happen, but it's not a reason to change the law. Now, if I could just say one other tiny thing. Um, Jackie talked about the um, inescapable truth, the recent DID publication. So that, that's based on 25 semi-structured interviews with people who were affected by the limits of palliative care, and on the quantitative data comes from some opinion polls with yes-no questions commissioned by Dignity in Dying. Good for them for doing it, but let's do some stuff that isn't um, commissioned by, by, by campaigning groups. Let's do some stuff that looks much more broadly at this. Okay, thank you. Jackie, since you've been named, we'd like to reply just very briefly before I go back to the audience. Um, I would, I, yes, I'll say whoa, two things just very briefly. Yeah. Two sentences. Um, you say patients get choices, but in fact they're your choices, not the patient's <laughs> choices, and I think that's the important thing here, that, 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 that palliative care people offer patients the palliative care choices, and they're not listening to their patients. Um, well, that's not very nice to say rubbish. Okay, I mean, okay, okay, Jack, Jackie, right. that's not true, and it's not fair. Okay, well, let, let's, let's perhaps bring the audience in, and you've had your hand up for quite a while at the front. And then uh, to you. Okay. And then to the middle. Hello. Um, while I respect what you both have to say, I completely disagree with you from personal experience and from the moral point of view. My question is, if that's what you want for you and those you care for, that's fine. But why do you think you have the moral right to deprive me of what I would like to do at the end of my life? Okay, thank you. And there's a point at the front... Right, yeah, actually, that was, that was very much in line with what I was going to say, to be fair, because I do think you're taking away a right, and I think that needs to be justified if you are going to take away that right. You can't just say, well, that's the way it's always been, and we have to change it all that way. We should have evaluated why we're bringing it back. Also, who are these um, vulnerable people I, that might be hurt by it? I don't, I don't, I don't know who sure. they are. Like, to me, yeah. if anyone wants to die at the end and of their yeah. life, regardless of how compass mentis they yeah. are, they should still be allowed to make that decision. If I got dementia, and I think that's another thing, we're all missing the personal issue in this, and that was acknowledged again, is all saying them, 
them, but we're all going to eventually die. What do we want? That's a big thing I'd like to hear from the pa individual panellists, if I can, and I don't know if they'll do that later, but is you've, you know, brain um, thought experiment, you've been told you've got terminal cancer, you know it's going to be a horrible death. I mean, no one sees people with terminal brain cancer, say, and think, oh, that looks fun. And this was on offer. Would you not take it individually? Okay. Would you decide, no, I'm not going to Thank you. It. And the gentleman in the middle there. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'd just like to play a devil's egg advocate for a moment, or I suppose uh, God's advocate. I'm just wondering, how would you respond to the view, um, the religious view, specifically Catholic, that uh, life is innately, uh, inherently valuable because it comes from God? Um, so that assisted uh, suicidal euthanasia would be would actually be separate to your lorry driver's example because uh, the span of, is different. Okay. okay, and finally for this batch, the gentleman in the middle there. Before I retired, I had the great privilege of being a GP for 35 years in a small village, so I got to know three generations of patients. And I've lost count of the number of patients at the end of their life who pleaded with me to do something. But everybody did. And as a GP, it was very, very heartbreaking not to be able for those patients who choose to, to help them. And when somebody gets a diagnosis of cancer, they can either go through horrendous surgery, chemotherapy, which we would support them with. Other people say, no, I'm not going to do that. And that choice is absolutely accepted. I just, and I would be at the front of the queue for my palliative care colleagues. I think they do a fantastic job. That, with great respect, I think it's a red herring, complete red herring in this debate. This is about patient autonomy. At the time in their life, they, they can choose everything else. If they choose for whatever reason, whether it be religious, whether it be family, whether it be their own ability to cope with, I mean, the, the argument about being on the, on the, um, the flaming towers, uh, you know, to me, palliative care will be putting on an asbestos suit. You're still going to, you know, it's, if that person chooses to jump out of the, uh, of the flaming towers, that's their choice. And as a GP, it was one of the, it's actually quite moving to talk about it because he tried in a small area to do a lot for people. But this was probably the one thing when I felt I failed them. Probably two or three generations before, there would not have been an issue. I know it would have happened. But sadly, that can't happen now because people have moved on. But it, it, it's still after having been retired for five years, it moves me when this comes up because the one thing that I wanted to do for people, I'd often known for 25 or 30 years, I'd known their, their parents, sometimes their grandparents there, and I just couldn't help them. And I think a lot of red herrings are thrown up here, and it just boils down basically to patient choice. Okay. And all the fluff and red herrings should be just put to one okay, side. Let, let me return to the panel now um, for brief comments in a different order. Uh, Jackie, anything you want to uh, respond to? Um, I completely agree with my colleague there, you know, Post Shipman, I think, um, this business of seeing people off behind closed doors, which MPs truly believe in, because I've talked to a lot of MPs. Oh, you doctors will fix it. Guess what? I know a GP who, who, who was looking after a patient at home terminally ill, wouldn't go into hospital, gave him morphine, came back in the next morning, the patient lived on his own, was dead. That GP was arrested, taken down to the police station, had his boot laces and braces taken away and didn't work for two years while they investigated the claim from the patient's relatives that he'd killed the patient. So, and that was a well-publicised um, uh, incident around the country. I happen to know that person. Um, and so GPs are very afraid about, about that these days. Um, uh, so, and um, to cut a very nice question at the back, important question, you know, it's, and, and, and sort of brave to put that question these days. I think mean, that doesn't sound horribly patronising, but, you know, life is inherently valuable because it comes from God. Uh, 
people are absolutely entitled to their religious views. But what I would say is, come back to, to the, to the um, Oscar Wilde quote, if that's how you want to see your end and you're, not, you're going to refuse everything at the end, that's fine for you. But please recognise that there are people who don't... You could even argue, if life is inherently valuable because it's, it's your life and you should be able to say at the end, OK, God, I've had enough of this now because it really wasn't meant to be this bad. So please be religious, feel that about yourself, but don't foist that on other people. Thank you. OK, thank you. Kevin, anything to Yes, I mean, a um, point right at the beginning, I think, is, is a very good uh, way to start. I think the key question that we all have here is, um, shall we prevent suicide in people, or shall we uh, allow suicide and, and not you know, get involved? And, that, and that's the, the basic idea, because if you say autonomy, you cannot, if you say we need to provide this on the basis of autonomy, you can't deny it to anyone. It must be as, you know, to, to people who feel bad about themselves for whatever reason. If you use the criteria of unbearable suffering, that's a completely subjective criteria. That's not a medical criteria at all. And any patient who really says, I am suffering unbearably, we must believe. It's patronizing not to. We can't divide people into people we can provide death for and people we don't provide death for. Otherwise, it's an unequal society. Uh, it, it doesn't really work. We're segmenting off one section of the population, which is why the disabled uh, community is so opposed to assisted suicide, because they're afraid that they'll be segmented often, and people will say, you know what, in your circumstances, we will provide suicide. Um, everybody else, we're going to try and stop and prevent suicide. The reason I think it's worth preventing suicide, you kind of went to the heart of the question, which I think is good, is that we as a community have an interest in saving lives. And as, as Durkheim made the point, he said, a community that does not uh, save the lives of its members or allows them to be taken, even if the, the murderer and the, the uh, victim are the same person, is going to lose all moral semblance of a community. If we don't protect the lives of our own members, we're nothing. That's not to say people as individuals can't have a, a right to kill themselves. Obviously, everybody in this room has both the right and the capability of killing yourself. That's not a problem. Um, but if I see you uh, trying to commit suicide, I would like to think that I would try and stop you because that is, as a member of the community, what, our, what we actually have. It has nothing to do with God for me. It has to do okay. with uh, the way we feel as a community towards our own members. Okay, John, would you like to respond to anything in the audience or maybe specifically to that, if you wish? Well, just two things. Yeah. Um, firstly... Um, to uh, the gentleman who asked, what would I do? Uh, I, well, I, I don't know, but I don't have to worry about that if I have the choice in my own hands. I can decide in the light of the circumstances that I'm faced with. What I fiercely resent and fear is being deprived of the, that ability to make my own choice in the light of the circumstances that I face, rather than have that choice foisted upon me. And to uh, just uh, a footnote, what my colleague said in, in response to the question about uh, the Catholics. Well, um, I don't uh, presume to tell the Catholics what they should do or what their observances should be. I would really like them to extend the same courtesy to me. Uh, there was a wonderful debate between the philosopher Bertrand Russell and Father Cobbleston, a Catholic priest, uh, in which 
uh, they've been debating the existence of a God for a long time, and Copleston said to Bertrand Russell, well, look, just I know you don't think there is a God, but just supposing you're wrong, and when you die, you have to present yourself uh, at his feet. Mm. What will you say when he said, why did you disobey me? Why did you deny me? And Russell's reply was, which I hope would be mine in those circumstances, well, uh, God, uh, you gave me a brain. All the evidence was against you. <laughs> what did you expect me to conclude? <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> and this raises the in, in, intricate theological question of the divine hiddenness problem of God, which is, we're not here to discuss, fascinating though it would be. Um, I wonder with the uh, assisted-dying debate how much of the debate is actually about empirical matters, um, including the question, is there any need for assisted-dying, and how much is actually on uh, matters of absolute principle, which are perhaps readily supported by theistic views, but maybe don't need such theistic views, because Kevin is an atheist and does think there should be uh, no, no um, uh, change in the law. But I'd like to go out to the audience a final time before asking the panellists to sum up. So, Can I have oh, sorry, sorry, Carol, I meant to... <laughs> I just wanted to quickly come back to your point about who are vulnerable people. I think it was your point. I mean, anybody and everybody at different times. So, so we know that people um, near the time of a diagnosis of a very significant and life-threatening illness are at the most vulnerable. We know from Oregon that those are a, quite a large proportion of the people who go and explore the possibilities of physician-assisted suicide, and we know that that can drop off over time in some. We also know that um, palliative care in the UK, which I understand seems to be a dirty word in the room today, but it isn't, is far, far better developed. It was not developed at all in Oregon until the last handful of years, and you need to bear that in mind when you're looking at things. And then you need to look at the, disabled, the, 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 the people who are disabled. So recently, the National Council on Disability in America examined how assisted suicide laws are working in America, and I quote, Council does not believe that added safeguards, modified safeguards, or indeed safeguards of any kind will remove the inherent dangers in assisted suicide laws. And I urge you to look at um, Tanny Gray-Thompson and colleagues' letter in The Guardian the other day, which also talks about how they feel protected by the 1961 Suicide Act. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, to the audience again, I have the lady at the end there and the lady at the front. Thank you very much, panel discussion. Out of all the topics this weekend, this is what I was looking forward to the most. Bit second dark, but I came in with my opinion. I'm very, I'm very pro um, disability and dying, and I really wanted to hear your thoughts and really understand it. And if that's the purpose of this evening, it's to listen to the other parties. I have to say, and with respect to both of you, I'm not a palliative nurse. I don't know as much detail as you do. But I'm really stuck with not even vaguely trying to fall in line with your method of thinking for different reasons. One, it's, as you know, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name, was saying about um, difference between suic assisted suicide and assist assisted dying. And clearly there's a difference. You know, if you're diagnosed with cancer or even motor neuron disease and you're told you've got six months to live, I don't quite understand how, as has been raised by quite a few people in the audience, you are basically robbing people of their own decision about what to do with their lives. And you're shaking your head, and I find it quite interesting watching the panel members, because you're nodding, you're shaking your head, or you're nodding, or you're shaking your head. And I just think it's absolutely fascinating. It's quite comedy down here, just watching you all. But I think it's... I really just... I can't get away from that. that I, and I, I don't have the nurse, the palliative experience with you doing nurses. But, I mean, it's different, and I didn't die, but I fell off a horse, like, ten years ago. I fractured my skull, I was in a coma... All sorts of stuff, but I made a full recovery. Excellent care I received. 
But I know that if I hadn't, and I look at the photos of me in hospital, and I'm like, fuck, sorry for the language, but I would not have chosen that life. I can't start crying. And I feel like you are slightly taking that dignity away from people. And that is what I, I'm curious. I would love to be persuaded otherwise. I'd be interested. But I just can't see that. Go and volunteer okay. in a hospice. And then you go and volunteer in a hospice. Okay. Thank you. And the woman at, at, at the front. Yeah. Okay, so my question is, if we were to legalise assisted dying, how would that go against Hippocratic Oath? Because doctors take that oath, so how would that okay. clash? Okay, Hippocratic Oath. Um, this is um, another question for the side opposing um, assisted dying. Um, you were talking about saving a life. Your job is to save a life, and that is incredible. I think that's wonderful. I admire you. But... Could it not be argued that you are saving a person's life by letting them die when they want to, by letting them not endure the emotional pain of knowing that they are dying? Some people want to die in the, the prime of their life when they, they can talk to their family, they look the same, they are who they were you know, before they got diagnosed with this disease. When you're dying, I saw my granddad dying, he was not the same person as he was before. And I know, probably, he would have wanted to die as the same person he was. And I think, how can you say that you're saving a person's life that wants to die? They don't have to live this life that they don't want to live anymore. They shouldn't have to. Okay, thank you. And a final... Yes, the woman with her hand up <coughs> next to it at the back, on the side. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, I just had a gut reaction to your suggestion that the woman in the front should go and volunteer in a hospice. I mean, can't you just hear that she disagrees and that that's fine? We can't all agree. Um, and I think we do, you know, the choice argument, to me, is just um, irrefutable. But I just want to, res you know, respect people's different views, really, because I agree there's been a lot of Well, maybe the, the autonomy argument can be pursued by our panelists, because it is central. But I can just turn for one more point from uh, the audience, um, Yes, in the, in the middle. Uh, it's a question to all of the, the, the panellists, really, which is, to what extent do you think that... Um, I mean, Shipman's name was mentioned, but the Shipman inquiry and perhaps a kind of breakdown of trust um, has contributed to this discussion. Um, and as a kind of follow-on from that, really, is does that not... Does not the scrutiny that the medical profession have placed under these days, taking on board one of the points that was made here, that in the past we had more of a relationship where doctors were caring for generations of people, the, the, the boundaries of death were much more blurred, where now everything is so much under the spotlight. Is it not the case that palliative care teams, who I agree with you, I think do an enormously wonderful job trying to deal with, with the needs of patients, and indeed doctors are themselves vulnerable because there is such scrutiny that is given to how death actually happens when people are dying, that they are called, as our relatives, so much to account that that, in fact, also takes something away from the, 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 
the, the dyingness that is going on. Okay, um, thank you very much. I'd like though to go back to the panel. Um, Carol, any points about anything? Um, I feel I have to come back on the volunteering in the hospice. Mm. I'm very sorry, perhaps I misunderstood you. I thought you were asking me how you could better understand my point of view. And my answer was, well, you could go and volunteer in a hospice. So if I came out wrong, I apologise. About the scrutiny that you've just raised, in the UK, people work nowadays in really strong, multi-speciality, multidisciplinary teams. They work across primary care and secondary care, across general practice and hospitals. And so we scrutinise each other. And the UK is well known for that. So um, we don't live all the time fearing shipmen. We live being very, very aware of that and everything else. And we live in a world that's governed by clinical governance and by patient safety above all. And, it's, and we're not scared of the scrutiny because we scrutinise each other. Jackie, any points um, from the last batch of questions? Oh, from the, I, I'm just trying to work out whether this is something oh, no, just, just, just about the questions, yeah. Um, mm. Just about the questions. Yeah. I thought the, the, the point about... I've got so many things scribbled down here. I don't know what I've got. Um, I thought the point about the Hippocratic Oath was really important, but in fact... The, I, I never took the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, my God, perhaps that tells you something about me. Um, but in fact, the, what doctors do now is they take the Declaration of Geneva, I think it is, and that is quite different from the, from the Hippocratic Oath, and it's very much more centred on patient autonomy, and I will listen to the patient... I will take into account what the patient wants. And I don't think that assisted dying is, um, is out of step with what doctors now, now promise to do. Um, I knew Kevin would at some stage, because I've been on the platform with him before, hit, hit me from both sides, uh, because what he says is, you shouldn't be doing this, and then he, sh and then he says, well, you should be doing it for everybody. Um, and, of course, we do get hit, because we, we go for the Oregon model. The reason the Oregon model is talked about, he said, oh, it's always Oregon, Oregon, Oregon. Of course, that's the only model that's ever been offered in this country. It's been there for 20 years, and everybody understands what it is. And then he says, well, of course, they've kept it very rigid, so that everybody else can point at them. Well, poor people, could, you know, they're going to get slammed either way. If, they, if they'd gone down a slippery slope, he'd have been after them. And if they, if they don't go down the slippery slope, then they're keeping it rigid so that everybody else can point at them. So I, I don't accept those arguments. The reason, the reason that I think that, you know, John and I will disagree on this, you, you have to set a limit. If you have speed limits, you don't say nobody can drive through this area, or you can all drive through at 60 miles an hour. You hit something in the middle that actually society um, accepts. And one of the interesting things is if you ask society about assisted dying, they're very clear about assisted dying, where it's self-administered, and it becomes much muddier if you say, start talking to people about voluntary euthanasia. So there, there is a middle way that's acceptable to society and, and that is not a threat to society and to the people who will be involved in it. Thank you. Uh, Kevin, any responses to the audience's last bunch of questions? Yeah, so it's, it's connected to what Jackie's saying. Um, if you offer death as a cure, how can you deny it to anybody who feels that they need that particular cure for themselves? That where do you draw the line? That's the challenge that I put out to everybody, is to say, where do you draw this line? Where do you say, you know, um, you are deserving of an assisted death, you are not? Um, that's if you have autonomy, you have to provide everybody with the right to die. If you have a right to die, why six okay. months? Do people not suffer at seven months to live? I mean, not to not to come back, but people can suffer. For instance, there's a case going through the courts at the moment, um, which is about a gentleman who has a condition where he's lost the use of his limbs. Um, I can't remember his. his his name at the moment, but he's arguing very credibly that he's going to suffer for longer 
So why shouldn't he get that cure uh, that people with six months to live have got? So I don't, I don't okay. see why, um, you know, I, I can't see why you can, how you can draw a line and justify it in any real moral terms uh, at any time. And I just think what we're just, you, you know, and that's the central problem of this is that uh, it's our attitude towards uh, the lives of other people. If we say that people over 70, oh, you should be able to die, um, then we are devaluing the lives of these people. And you can talk about Oregon, Jackie, but the point is Oregon is not a country. Every country where it's been legalized has gone much, much further than the original justification of somebody terminally ill. Every single country. So that's the point to keep in mind. I think, um, or, I think Oregon is not the future. I think it's much more Canada, and um, eventually we'll get to Netherlands. Okay, thank you. Uh, John? Just, points to just, just yes. on the, the points that have arisen, yeah. uh, the Shipman case was mentioned. I mean, it, it's... A, you may, you may find murderers anywhere. <laughs> they may be found in any profession. Uh, there is no way you can uh, legislate or regulate for that possibility. Uh, so I think we just have not to, worry, um, not to worry about that at all. The other thing I, I think is very important to think about is, is the question, where do you draw the line? Now, I, I would draw the line in a different place, I think, from everybody else on this panel. I would draw it in the autonomy of the individual. Uh, but it, that doesn't matter because there's another answer. I mean, the, 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 the two answers you might give to where you would draw the line, personally uh, and politically, uh, it should always be the same. Firstly, personally, you should draw it where you see a good reason for drawing it and not if you do not see a good reason for drawing it. That is why I'm very open to people making their own choices because I do not see, in, on, in the individual case, a good reason against permitting individuals to make their own assessment of whether they want to die or not. But the other answer to the question where you draw the line in a democracy, of course, is where society decides that that line should be drawn. And of course, in a democracy, that line can change as uh, not as people's judgments about that change. We've just seen in Northern Ireland that uh, the abortion law, which has stood for, uh, and in Southern Ireland too, and I took a, 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 a role in that because I gave evidence to the Supreme Court in a, in a, in a Northern Ireland case. But in a, in a democratic society, we draw the line where we collectively, as the democracy, decide that line should be drawn, reserving always the right to change our minds democratically about that. Okay, thank you, John. We're getting to that point where we have to wind it up very soon in less than two minutes. But if I could ask each panellist, if they so desire, simply to sum up their case in one sentence, or at most two if they're reasonably short sentences, perhaps starting in the original order, uh, and I'm aware that you know, some people think that it's always emotions and instincts that guide these and reasons come later. It's for the audience to decide whether that's the case with these, with these panellists or indeed with themselves. But, John? Well, I think what has not been explored in, in, in this meeting, which it goes to the heart of it, is the question of what constitutes the value of life? In what does the value of life consist? And I wrote a book about that in 1985. You can still get it. Uh, published by Rutledge, a long book, so it's a very complicated issue. But let me give you one thought about how you might answer that question uh, in this context. 
I assume that everybody in this room has a valuable life. But we're all different. And what we value about life and the degree to, we value, uh, to which we value it and the circumstances in which we would surrender some of that value will differ in each case. What I am for is giving each person with their valuable life the right, the absolute right, to determine their own path through that life and where that life should end. Thank you very much. We are very pressed time. Just very briefly, Kevin, if you wish to. Strangely enough, I agree with that, that people should have the ability to value their own lives. But that doesn't mean that we, as a community, can't value their lives as well. If somebody turns around and says their life is valueless, I would still try and prevent them from committing suicide uh, because they're, they're, they may change their, their perspective. And I think we owe it as a community not okay. to provide suicide as a cure for medical problems or any other Jackie. problems. Um, I think it's, I, I'm not disputed that people die bad deaths. I know it as a doctor, um, and I know it personally. And as a compassionate doctor, I believe there are proven laws in place which can offer people faced with a bad death the choice to avoid that death. It's coming. We need to be looking at how to do it and not whether to do it. Thank you very much. And finally, Carol. Carol Davis. When the Select Committee of Peers um, was meeting, looking at the Joffe Assisted Dying Bill, they too used the example that was the first talk of today about the policeman and the burning fire. In front of them they had a Catholic bishop, an Anglican theologian, a rabbi and a Muslim doctor. And that group of people were asked what they would do. And one of them answered, it is a hugely compassionate case. I would do exactly as the policeman did and I hope you would too. But I would not expect the law to be changed to allow that. Thank you. May very I just give a footnote to that? A very, quick, a very quick footnote. I gave evidence to that committee of the House of Lords, and they got that example from me. Okay. <laughs> on, that, uh, uplifting, on that uplifting note, I'd like to thank all our speakers, uh, John Harris, Kevin Yule, Jackie Davis, and Kev uh, Carol Davis for a very stimulating talk. And thank Living and Dying Well. You can find out more about the festival by heading to our website at battleofideas.org.uk. To stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and sign up to the newsletter by following the link below this recording.